Hello, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It is Saturday, February 10th, 2024, and our Congregation of Prayer on Saturday uh, at the moment will be uh, considering tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading, uh, one of which will be helpful, the anointing of David as king, so we can... uh, maybe better understand why uh, God brought such severe judgment against uh, David's son, conceived out of wedlock, conceived by adultery with Bathsheba. Um, and he made the comment about the public scandal, right, that he had brought blasphemy against the Lord publicly. And that's why he would be uh, rebuked. God would allow um, evil to come upon him publicly in response. So God's word is true. Um, so we'll hear about that. And um, then also um, love and the fulfilling of the law, um, not a uh, not a topic that I think we're adept at actually having a conversation about. And I think uh, what did Pastor Riley say yesterday in our Band Books podcast episode um, that uh, love has all sorts of wrong definitions attached to it. So the way that the word love is used is usually false. I think I've ranted about that before, so I'll, I'll pardon you that. Um, but we want to think about what what does it mean uh, to love? All right, because uh, that's what Jesus will be about, especially as we move towards um, Golgotha and the cross. All right, so let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, our psalm this week is Psalm 84. We'll use the uh, Scottish Metrical Psalter version here again. How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, to me. The tabernacles of thy grace, how pleasant, Lord, they be. My thirsty soul longs vehemently, yea, faints thy courts to see. My very heart and flesh cry out, O living God, for thee. Behold, the sparrow findeth out an house wherein to rest. The swallow also for herself hath purchased a nest. In thine own altars, where she safe, her young ones forth may bring. O thou almighty Lord of hosts, who art my God and King. Blessed are they in thy house that dwell, they ever give thee praise. Blessed is the man whose strength thou art, and whose heart are thy ways. Who passing through Baca's vale, therein do dig up wells. Also the rain that falleth down, the pools with water fills. So they from strength unwearied go, still forward unto unto strength, until in Zion they appear before the Lord at length. Lord God of hosts, my prayer hear, O Jacob's God, give ear. See God our shield, look on thy face of thine anointed dear. For in thy courts one day excels a thousand rather in. My God's house will I keep a door than dwell in tents of sin. For God, the Lord's asunder shield, he'll grace and glory give, and will uphold or withhold no good from them that uprightly do live. O thou that art the Lord of hosts, that man is truly blessed, who by assured confidence on thee alone doth rest. All right. I didn't look up a Gloria Patri that fits, <laughs> a metrical Gloria Patri, but there you go. All right, our verse for the week, we say together, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there 
there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 5. And our catechism for the week, confession. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts, which are these. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? All right. Uh, I mentioned the uh, the German word, the Spiegel earlier this week, uh, and I found it. I actually have it on the website under Pastoral Care of Souls. Um, I actually have it listed. It's available there. I'm going to copy the link, though, and put it in the chat. Now, this is worth looking at. Um, these I'll put out copies of this. I should That reminds me. I'll put out copies of these uh, for Lent, all right? Um, but you'll find in there, for example, um, what commandment should we use? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping a holy third commandment, all right? And so then it asks questions. Do I strive? This is considering your place in life according to the Ten Commandments, right? So it instructs you how to do this. Do I strive to make the day of rest holy? Do I care about holy living? Do I use the word of God in prayer to make my time, work, study life holy day by day? Am I lazy, bored with the word of God? Have I any fear of God over this neglect? Do I honor the word of God highly by studying it gladly, learning it by heart, and living it? Do I despise the word of God by neglect, paying no attention to it when it is read and preached? Do I love my fellow Christians by being present with them in worship to sustain them? Am I quick to make excuses for neglecting worship because of what else has said, what someone else has said or done, or to do other things I like more? Do I spend time complaining about worship, the pastor, or other people? Do I learn the word gladly so that I may teach others? All right. And those are just some of the questions. There's probably more that could be asked. Um, I think I remember uh, Ken Corby, Dr. Ken Corby, taught at St. Louis, um, that he had a series of questions as well. And uh, uh, actually, that's where I got these. <laughs> those are the ones that I'm using. <laughs> All right, perfect. These were prepared by Dr. Kenneth Corby, uh, at the time serving in Z- at Zion, St. Paul, Minnesota. All right, so those are the Corby questions. <laughs> I wondered where I got them. All right, very good. So uh, tomorrow we'll hear for our Old Testament reading, <clears throat> the anointing of David as king. And so we'll have opportunity to consider what it means to be God's anointed, which of course ultimately is in the son of David, Jesus, right? The Messiah Christ. First Samuel 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, You come peaceably. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. 
Then he consecrated Jesse, his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was, when they came, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. All right, so I suppose there's a few background things that we should talk about first. Um, kings are anointed, so there's oil poured on the head. Um, the technical word for being anointed is to be messiach, from which we get messiah, um, or in Greek, Christos, to be uh, Christ, Christed, I guess, to be, uh, to be Christ. That's our title then. So Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, would be probably uh, better, even though the is not usually um, there in the text. Um, just so that we better understand this is a title that refers to him as being the anointed one. Of course, then that begs the question, anointed as prophet or priest or as king, right? Of course. Uh, and Jesus is all three. Here, David is being anointed as king. Um, and notice, too, what's also connected to anointing with oil, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, right? So when Jesus was baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit descended like a dove. Um, and so then also we confess our anointing um, comes in baptism. Um, many traditions will actually add, uh, use oil after um, the washing with water. To be, to be baptized is to be washed with water, um, but then they are, uh, what's the word we use? Oh, we have a word for this, christened, christened, and that's the, uh, the anointing with oil. Um, for Lutherans, we typically have uh, omitted that practice uh, because it can take away from the washing of water, which does the thing because the word of God's attached to that. And uh, we have no promise or word of God attached to anointing, but we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism, and anointing with oil um, is a good sign of that. Um, and then, you know, we don't get baptized again, we don't use holy water, um, but it might be helpful to bring uh, fragrant oil to anoint the sick. Um, so I haven't quite put that into practice. It's actually suggested in, in the pastor materials as a, as a potential practice for us. Uh, and if that same anointing oil is used at baptism, then of course, the fragrance become connected, and it can even, I suppose, trigger some kind of um, um, deep memory from uh, if you're baptized as a child. All right, so that's the first point. Now, anointed with um, oil, the king, he's made king. Uh, of course, he won't serve as king yet. He'll continue to serve under Saul. Um, God takes his time in removing Saul, and David will have to wait, abide his time until such a time. Um, Luther actually refers to the anointing and the choosing of God and choosing nobility or kings in a letter he wrote to the German, uh, to the Christian nobility of the German nation concerning the improvement of the Christian estate. This would have been in 1520, or the reform of the Christian estate, improvement or reform. All right. And um, I think there's some helpful things here to take note of. Um, he actually instructs the German nobility to establish schools for the instruction of children. 
right? It's one of the things. That's where Lutheran education really finds its its root. Um, of course, Melanchthon is already in Wittenberg at this point. He's the young prodigy. I think they'd already started the, started the Wittenberg school, but then it, it takes off. Um, but he's also going to talk about um, our relation to to the uh, nobility or the arist, uh, what do we call it? The aristocracy, right? Um, we have one. We try to think that it's we the people that <laughs> that rule this country. Um, not really. Uh, I mean, locally, absolutely. Um, nationally, no, there's a ruling class, the, the DC elite. There's all sorts of names for that, right? Uh, and that's not necessarily a problem as long as they've been instructed in God's word and they and they live according to it, right? They act according to it. So listen to what Luther has to say uh, to these noblemen um, who are the rulers. Secular law, God help us, has become a wilderness. Ooh, now that's a statement right there, isn't it? By secular law, Luther means primarily uh, Roman law as codified in uh, the Corpus Iuris Civilis together with the Corpus uh, Iuris Canonici, which is the common law of the Roman, Holy Roman Empire. Uh, there were various versions of Germanic law as well. All right, so that's the footnote. So, uh, secular law has become a wilderness, though it is much better, wiser, and more honest than the spiritual law, or the canon law is what he means there, which has nothing good about it except its name. So he has not a high respect for uh, all the decrees of the Pope, okay? <laughs> there is nevertheless far too much of it, far too much of secular law. Surely wise rulers, along with Holy Scripture, would be more than enough law. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, is there no one among you who can judge his neighbor's cause that you must go to law before heathen courts? All right. It seems just to me that territorial laws and customs should take precedence over general imperial laws and that the imperial laws be used only in case of necessity. Would God that every land were ruled by its own brief laws suitable to, the, to its gifts and peculiar character? This is how these lands were ruled before the imperial laws were designed and as many lands are still ruled without them. Rambling and far-fetched laws are only a burden to the people, and they hinder cases more than help them. But I hope that others have already given more thought and attention to this matter than I am able to do so. Um, by 1530, Luther um, is much more positive towards Roman law and suggesting that it it actually reflects God's law. Um, and then he has kind of a harsh view of the Germanic law, which he found barbarous in severity and frequently unfair in its application. All right. Um, but at this point, um, he th- he thinks, and I think he's right. Uh, many other traditions have articulated this. It's the uh, the principle of s- uh, subsidiarity that the uh, the most effective ruler is the most local. Right. So the best ruler of children, of course, is the father. The next best um, it is say the mayor um, or the sh- or the sheriff, I suppose. Right. And you work your way out to the county level, um, to the region, and maybe to the state. Um, ultimately, um, federal rule is the least effective. Um, and it's the least uh, appropriate, actually, is what Luther is saying here, because it it isn't particular to their character and to their gifts, right? Um, but I think this even happens within states. When I lived in Chicago, um, you know, downstate had a very low view of Chicago politics and how they kind of overruled whatever the rest of the state wanted. Here in Wisconsin, it's Madison, same idea, or Green Bay and Milwaukee, right? Um, they their uh, ruling class impose laws upon the rest of the state that they really don't want. Right? And that's just simply because they don't know us. Right? Uh, the best rulers would be here local. And, but notice Luther says local and guided by God's, by Holy Scripture. All right. So Christian rulers that live, that are close. And uh, thanks be to God, we actually have that with our both, I think, our state and our uh, federal representatives that are local 
um, that they are also godly Christian men. All right. So we have that. Uh, we have an ungodly non-Christian woman <laughs> also uh, for our state, but uh, let's not talk about her at the federal level. All right. My dear theologians have saved themselves worry and work. They just leave the Bible alone and lecture on the sentences. All right. So now he's talking about schools. Uh, the schools are, from Luther's perspective, um, effectively broken because they don't preach the gospel. They don't teach the gospel. They don't preach it. Um, they don't even study the scriptures. And so he's imploring these German leaders then um, that they be compelled to teach Holy Scripture, um, especially those who call themselves teachers of, of Scripture. Uh, also that uh, only the best theological books be published, right? He's commending the nobility to be the ones in charge of this. Uh, and for the foremost reading for everybody, both in the universities and in the schools, the foremost reading should be Holy Scripture, and for the younger boys, the Gospels. And it would God that every town had a girls' school as well. This is really radical for, you know, for the time, for 1520, where the girls would be taught the gospel for an hour every day in German or in Latin. But real schools, monasteries, and nunneries began long ago with that end in view, and it was a praiseworthy and Christian purpose as we learn forth from the story of St. Agnes and other saints. Those were the days of holy virgins and martyrs when all was well with Christendom, but today these monasteries and nunneries have come to nothing but praying and singing. Is it not only right that every Christian know the entire Holy Gospel by the age of nine or ten, which is what we do in our school, <laughs> of course, does not each person derive name and life from the Gospel? A spinner and a seamstress teaches her daughter her craft in their early years, but today even great learned prelates and the very bishops do not know the Gospel. How irresponsibly we deal with these young pe- poor young people who are committed to us for training and instruction. We shall have to render a solemn account of our neglect to set God, the word of God before them. Their lot is described in Jeremiah, etc. And then he talks about the universities. Uh, and then he moves on to uh, this secular authority, and he talks about um, the, Roman, um, the Roman Empire being actually um, anti-Christ, uh, along with both its emperor and, of course, the pope. Um, so we want to talk about, then, what does God use secular rule for? All right, so I'm going to skip a few pages here, because we're not too concerned about the empire. Uh, where should we jump in here? All right, here we go. Now, may God, who, as I said, tossed this empire into our lap, we could say the same of our country, by the wiles of tyrants and has charged us with its rule, help us to live up to the name, title, and insignia and to retrieve our liberty. Let the Romanists see once and for all what is what it is that we have received from God through them. If they boast that they have bestowed an empire on us, let them. If that is true, then let the Pope give us back Rome and all that he has gotten from the empire. Let him free our land from this in, his intolerable taxing and fleecing. Let him give us back our liberty, our rights, and our honor, our body and soul, and let the empire be what an empire should be, so that the Pope's words and pretensions might be fulfilled. If he will not do that, then what is he playing at with his false fabricated words and his deceptions? Right, so this is the way that the Pope has um, put himself in league with the state, with the Roman Empire. Right? Luther says that this is an uh, abomination, right? Has there not for so many centuries now been enough of his ceaseless and uncouth leading of this noble nation around his, by his nose, by the nose? It does not follow that the Pope must be above the emperor because he crowns or appoints him. So to that point, the prophet Samuel anointed and crowned the king Saul and David at God's command, and yet he was their subject. Right? So just because Samuel here anoints David doesn't make him um, above David. The prophet Nathan anointed King Solomon, but he was not set over the king on this account. Similarly, St. Elisha had one of his servants anoint Jehu, the king of Israel, but they still remained obedient and subject to the king. It has never happened in all history of the world that he who consecrated or crowned the king was over the king, except 
in the single instance of the Pope. All right. So um, I think there's a lesson here for us too, is that we as uh, Christians, uh, maybe in particular clergy, are given to speak God's word and to, to the secular estate, to the secular ruler. Right? It's part of our charge is to preach the gospel, and, and but also to commend vocationally um, to the civil estate the, ex- the exercise of God's, uh, well, of the law, maybe written upon the human heart and then explicated in God's word. We, we are charged to do that. We pray uh, both for and against. So for um, rulers who uh, work according to God's word and those who oppose God's word, then um, to be rebuked by God as well. That's part of our charge. That's part of our call. That doesn't mean that the pastor is above the secular ruler in secular matters. Of course not. Um, but it does mean that the pastor still has, has the duty to preach and teach. So, so there's that, and that's what Luther is doing here. Of course, it got him into trouble, um, t- trying to put the Pope in his place. Um, and later on, we'll even say in the Augsburg Confession that uh, we're willing to accept the Pope as a ruler of the Church, not of the world, or, you know, of the Empire, but certainly of the Church, um, if he would say it was by human right, and not by divine uh, mandate, hmm. because there's no scripture for that. Isn't that interesting? All right, so uh, Luther... Uh, points out that uh, the church recognizes the secular estate, um, but also the church has a, uh, has a duty or a charge as he exercises in this document to the Christian nobility to instruct them as to what they should be doing for the benefit of faith. Right? For the benefit of faith. Isn't that incredible? Print these materials, establish these schools, make sure God's word is um, first and foremost the subject taught in these schools. Establish schools for girls so that they too uh, will know the gospel and can teach it to um, their daughters, etc. All right. Uh, there's a question. How old was David when he was anointed? I don't think they give us a date. Um, pretty confident there's no date. We imagine him to be quite young um, because, of course, after this is when uh, we have the, the David and Goliath incident. Um, let's see. This is the first we meet David, right? I have this other son, David. Send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not seeing. Let David stand before me. Uh, of course, we have the champion of the Philistines. David was the son who had eight sons, mm, the oldest of the sons, but it's not giving us a date. It just says he was the youngest, of course. All right. So I don't I don't think we know. I mean, I suppose we could figure it out just based off of a uh, timeline, roughly when it would be. Mm. Well, he's old enough to marry Saul's daughter, right? So eh, maybe late teens, early or mid to late teens. That seems to make sense. Of course, then uh, things go sideways. Okay. Good question. So, uh, oh, by the way, we should connect this being anointed to Christ. Um, he has, of course, he is Lord of both church and state. If you want to make that kind of distinction, of course, he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, right? So he does have authority, whether they recognize that authority or not. All right. Now to love. Though I speak in the tongue with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Hmm. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is, is, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, 
and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childless things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. All right, so uh, love, like I said, is a difficult word, I think, uh, just because of today, you know, uh, don't get in the way of love. And by that, they mean sexual attraction, which is not helpful, I think, um, for the word for love. I mean, this is uh, the agape kind of love is what he's talking about here. Um, sometimes defined as brotherly love or charity or even the love of God for man and of man for God. Um, so we, I, I think probably the right way to define this is this is not erotic love. This is not that. Um, the Greeks have multiple words. They also have philia, which is what we usually translate as brotherly love. Um, but this agape love is, uh, let's just call it Christian love. How about that? All right. And you see that all throughout this reading. Have not agape love, Christian love. That is, uh, the love like that of Christ for us. And no greater love than this, that one man, Jesus, lay down his life for us, is baptized, his friends, right? Made friends through baptism. Um, so the greatest of these is the love of God in Christ for sinners. Hmm? You want to fill in the blank there. So you'll notice that the love of God is also then, uh, it's not just action, although it is, it's very active. Um, but it's, I, I think we call it disposition. It's a disposition. It's his, uh, sometimes called his charity. All right? And that he, uh, and like us, then we are called to the same. Um, it, it actually touches every aspect of our life, whether it has to do with property and, and stuff, so envy, um, or um, boasting or pride, you know, does not parade itself. Um, our relationship to one another, not seeking what's best for us, but what's best for our neighbor, these sorts of things, right? It's all... It's a disposition that permeates then um, every aspect of our life. Um, so like I said, it's Christian love. It's the love that we are called to in Christ Jesus and that the Spirit works in us. Right? Um, so on the topic of love and then the fulfilling of the law, um, the Augsburg Confession, this would be Article 5 or 3, depending on how you want to number it, um, says this. Our topic our, On this topic, the adversaries quote against us, quote, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Likewise, it is the doers of the law who will be justified, and many other things about the law and works. All right, so this is important. Um, the first quote, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, is Matthew 19, and it is doers of the law who will be justified, Romans 2. All right, true. Before we reply to this, though, we must first declare what we believe about love and the fulfilling of the law. All right, so um, this is this is a, a typical logical move. Somebody makes a statement, but sometimes the um, the background is necessary before one can actually come to just directly answer um, the statement. Uh, this is, if you watched the uh, the interview with uh, Putin by um, uh, Tucker Carlson, which didn't really say anything new, if you'd watched the uh, interview of Putin with um, by Oliver Stone from, I think, four or five years ago, uh, although that's a lot longer. It <laughs> was like a four-hour interview or multiple interviews. Um, you know, the reasons for invading Ukraine or whatever. I mean, he said that many years ago. But um, uh, what was interesting is that uh, there's this, uh, uh, I guess it's what they call a viral trend on social media of memeing um, the the interview in particular, where um, I think Tucker asked something like, you know, why did you invade Ukraine? 
And uh, Putin said, well, if you will give me a minute, I'll, I will explain um, the background. And then he spends 30 minute lecturing on the history of the Russian people. <laughs> right. But you understand why he needed to do that. Um, because you can't just jump back five or 10 years and say, well, that's why, or even to 2014 with the, you know, uh, the Maidan revolt and that was run by the CIA in Ukraine or whatever. Right. I mean, you need to, you need to understand the relationship of these peoples and on where, you know, at the root, it'd be the same conversation you would have with Israel and Palestine. They're saying, well, there's just two people and they're arguing about territory. Um, I think there's more to it than that. There's a lot of history there um, that probably needs to be covered. Same here. We're going to talk about what um, Jesus means when he says, keep the commandments, or Paul when he says, uh, to be doers of the law, to be justified. Then we need to know what it means to be a doer of the law, or what it means to keep the commandments. And this is the topic of love, right? Which may be surprising to you. Um, So, continuing on, uh, a few more citations. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 3.31. All right. Um, We already heard Matthew 19. And then, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.3. So it's cited here. These and similar sentences testify that we are to keep the law when we have been justified by faith, and so grow in fulfilling the law more and more by the Spirit. All right. So just to be clear here, we're not saved by works. But we who have been justified by faith, that is through Christ's work, to die for us to forgive us our sins, are to grow in fulfilling the law more and more by the Spirit. This is what we call sanctification. Right? So the Spirit works in us to fulfill the law, um, not just in the way that Christ uh, what, what do we, imputes his law uh, keeping upon us, but also then works in us um, obedience to the law. Right? This is what we believe. So uh, obe- obedience to the law is not something foreign to Lutherans. Uh, it's just not justifying. It doesn't save us. But God does want to change your life. He does, like, for example, Psalm 51, creating you a clean heart. All right, continuing on. Furthermore, we are not talking about ceremonies, but about the law that addresses the movements of the heart, namely the Ten Commandments. Faith brings the Holy Spirit and produces a new life in the hearts. There's Psalm 51. It must also produce spiritual movements in hearts. The prophet Jeremiah shows what these movements are when he says, I will put my law within them and I will write them on their hearts. Therefore, When we have been justified by faith and regenerated, that's baptism, we begin to fear and love God, to pray to him, to expect aid from him, to give thanks and praise to him, and to obey him in times of suffering. We also begin to show or to love our neighbors because our hearts have spiritual and holy movements, right? So, as we say after the Lord's Supper with Luther's post-communion collect, that we pray that this gift, this heavenly gift, would um, increase in us faith toward you and fervent love toward one another, right? So in the forgiveness of sins, being justified um, by faith in Christ, then um, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work, uh, work amendment of life and love for neighbor. All right, these things cannot happen until we have been justified through faith and regenerated. That is, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's all baptism language. First, because the law cannot be kept without Christ. Likewise, the law cannot be kept without the Holy Spirit. The law cannot be kept without Christ, and the law cannot be kept without the Holy Spirit. In other words, the law cannot be kept apart from baptism either, right? But the Holy Spirit is received through faith, as Paul declares in Galatians 3, uh, 14, quote, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Also remember, how can the human heart love God while it knows that he is terribly angry and is oppressed, uh, oppressing us with en- earthly and endless distress? The law always accuses us. It always shows that God is angry. God is not loved until we receive mercy through faith. So we can't go to the law to know God's love for us. All we'll find there is accusation uh, and wrath. 
Not until then, that is, we receive mercy through faith from him, does he become someone we can love. Now, civil works, that is, the outward works of the law, can be done in some measure, even without Christ and without the Holy Spirit. So this world um, is, for the most part, filled with, I guess we call lawful people, for the most part, right? Um, but not, the, not to the degree or uh, in the way that God demands. That's the key here, all right? So you don't go around telling people that they're, that they're unlawful and, they're, uh, and that they're sinners and that they're damned, right? because of that. Although that's true, you know, you can commend people for when they do well, even if they don't do it in faith. All right, that's fine. Nevertheless, from what we have said, it seems that what belongs only to divine law, that is the heart's affections toward God, which are commanded in the first table, cannot be done without the Holy Spirit. So no faith, no trust, um, and no love of God is possible. That is no no, having no other gods, praying to God in all times, calling on his name, and, and attending to his word, that can only be received by the Holy Spirit, right? So, so the second table seems to, there, there, to some degree, that can be done even apart from faith. First table, absolutely not. But our adversaries are fine theologians. They focus on the second table in political works. They don't care about the first table. They act as though the first table were of no matter. They certainly require only outward fulfillment of the law. They in no way consider the law that is eternal and placed far above the sense and intellect of all creations. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, as Deuteronomy 6, 5 says. Christ was given for this purpose, that forgiveness of sins might be bestowed on us for his sake. He was also given so that the Holy Spirit might bring forth in us new and eternal life and eternal righteousness. Therefore, the law cannot truly be kept unless the Holy Spirit is received through faith. So, so Paul says that the law is established through faith and not made useless because the law can only be kept when the Holy Spirit is given. Paul teaches that the veil that covered the face of Moses cannot be removed except by faith in Christ by which the Holy Spirit is received. See 2 Corinthians 3. For he says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul understands by the veil the human opinion about the entire law. The opinio legis is what that's called in Latin. The Ten Commandments and the Ceremonies. In other words, hypocrites think that the outward and civil works satisfy God's law. Mm. and that sacrifices and observances justify the person before God by the outward act, ex opera operato. You've probably heard that before. But then this veil is removed from us, as we are freed from this error, when God shows to our hearts our uncleanness and hatefulness of sin. Then, for the first time, we see that we are far from fulfilling the law. We learn to know how flesh is secure and doesn't care. It does not fear God and is not completely certain that we are cared for by God. It imagines that people are born and die by chance. Then we experience that we do not believe that God forgives and hears us. But, but, and to Luther's point to the German nobility, when we hear about the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, we are consoled through faith. We receive the Holy Spirit so that we are able to think correctly about God, to fear and believe God, and so on. From these facts, it is clear that the law cannot be kept without Christ and the Holy Spirit. All right, so there, there's that important distinction um, and that what Paul's getting after here is not the works that works done um, for the neighbor justify. Um, they could never justify. They serve our neighbor uh, to supply the proof that faith is living, to quote, salvation unto us has come, which we sang last week, right? The proof that faith is living. Um, faith toward God is demonstrated in our love for our neighbor, all right? Now, this love, again, is a disposition. Um, namely, I think the chief act of love, and the Augsburg Confession uh, articulates this later, is to forgive one another their sins whether they like it or like it not, whether they want to be forgiven or not, right? Isn't that beautiful? What greater love than this is to, what? 
set aside whatever uh, you hold against your neighbor, whatever grudge, whatever they've done to you, and forgive them. Hmm. All right? And then, of course, in that kind of disposition, it changes everything. If if um, if you confess with your, <laughs> confess with your mouth and know in your heart that your neighbor is forgiven in Christ, um, then, of course, everything else follows, like bestowing your goods upon them um, as they have need, uh, prophesying, speaking the word to them, not being rude to them, not you know, acting in humility, not being provoked, um, you know, bearing with them in love, even with people you don't like. Uh, but the first is to forgive in Christ, right? Okay. So Paul has that in mind. Um, so Christ is anointed as, um, as king to serve us, of course, um, to provide for us our every need. And one of the things that he gives us is the gift of the Spirit so that we can, um, according to his good pleasure and according to his work, uh, fulfill the law and in love for neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a way, as I mentioned uh, in yesterday's podcast with uh, Pastor Riley, that uh, if you, um, hmm, how did I say it? Um, if you once you start looking at your works or your disposition, um, you can actually fall into the trap of trying to be justified by them again. All right. Um, so we don't look to our works. We um, we pray that God accomplish them amongst us. We ask Him to change our hearts and our disposition towards our neighbor. Right. Um, but if you go about like like counting all the ways that you love your neighbor or something like that, you're falling back into the curse of the law rather than um, the giftedness of of the spirits working uh, through forgiveness of sins in you. All right. So this will be important tomorrow because we're going to see um, the cross at the center of really our life together as Christians. And um, it's the fruits of the cross then that show the neighbor the love that they need. And Christ demonstrates that in his own ministry. All right. But we'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay. Let's sing uh, the first few stanzas of our hymn, From Depths of Woe, I Cry to Thee. I think stanza one through three. Yeah.
What a great hymn on confession. What a great way to learn about confession, isn't it? To sing it in a hymn. All right. Uh, let's see. February 10th. Uh, the Feast of the Nativity of uh, Luke Gillespie. Oh, no. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but no, today the church remembers Silas, fellow worker of St. Peter and St. Paul. Silas, or Silvanus in its Latin form, was a companion of uh, St. Paul from the inception of Paul's second missionary journey and later became a secretary for St. Peter as well. See 1 Peter 5. The young man shared in the various hardships of the gospel. He learned early and well from the apostles that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Acts 16 records one of the most stirring scenes in the New Testament. Paul and Silas, in answer to the famous Macedonian summons, had crossed for the first time with the good news um, into the continent of Europe. They made their way to the Roman colony of Macedonia, where the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear and believe the gospel. They proceeded to anger um, some local businessmen by driving out a demon from a slave girl who was a fortune teller and had been a source of revenue for them. Now she was, in their eyes, worthless. They demanded the arrest of Paul and Silas and a thorough beating by the magistrates. Quote, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Acts 16, 20-21. The crowd joined in the fray and Silas and Paul were finally hauled off for further punishment by beating with rods and handed over to the town jailer. They were locked in stocks in the deepest dark of the prison. What they proceeded to do shows how serious Paul was when he wrote, Rejoice Always. About midnight, Silas and Paul were awake, keeping vigil in prayer and song. They sang their hymns to God, and God answered. A mighty earthquake shook the prison, and miraculously all the doors were opened and every man's bonds loosed. Afraid that his charges had gotten away, the jailer was prepared to kill himself. But Paul called out from inside that all were accounted for, and he had no reason to fear. The jailer called for lights and prostrated himself before Silas and Paul. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then came their beautiful answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved in all your household. Luke records that Silas and Paul spoke the word to the jailer, and in great joy the man received holy baptism. Silas then was not merely a man to keep Paul company. He was truly a co-worker in the apostolic endeavor a fellow speaker of God's gracious promises in Christ to any who would hear and give heed. And for his service in bringing the gospel to foreign lands, we give thanks, give God thanks and praise. We pray. Almighty and everlasting God, your servant Silas, preached the gospel alongside the apostles Peter and Paul to the peoples of Asia Minor, Greece, and Macedonia. We give you thanks for raising up in this and every land evangelists and heralds of your kingdom that the church may continue to proclaim the unsearchable riches of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully grant that by your power we may be defended against all adversity. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for uh, the preaching of the Holy... No, it's Saturday. For the faithfulness for faithfulness to the end. We pray for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray this day, as we said, uh, with Luke. We can also uh, pray for Madeline as well. Vicky notes in the chat. 
Pray for the households of our church, Randy, John and Linda, Timothy and Amber, Rachel, Garrett and Jenny, Ron and Janet. Pray um, in thanksgiving for the gift of healing for Wendell, for our catechumens, for all those who are sick, receiving treatment or recovering, for our homebound, Marcy, Dan, Lenore, Joan, Paul, Dolores, Merlin, and Pauline, for all the missions and mercy work of the church, our mission of the month, Sheboygan Lutheran High School, um, but also um, for the upcoming assignments of new graduate pastors, deaconesses, and vicars from our seminaries. I would say musicians, too, from our Concordias. We ask the Lord uh, to grant us new students uh, as a fruit of our enrollment, mailing, and that Jesus would gather the lost sheep of, uh, of his flock back uh, to Sherman Center. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you, that into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, that's our Congregation of Prayer for today, uh, Saturday, February 10th, 2024. If you're listening to this yet, or if you're watching live or listening to it yet this morning, uh, if you have a chance at one o'clock, uh, come on out. Uh, we need to uh, finish um, cleaning up. Um, Chad LeClaire has done a great job in painting. Um, it's ready for us to put some of the things back up. I don't think we'll put the bulletin boards back up yet, um, but there we'll move most things back, railings and um, take off the painter's tape and all that. So uh, the, the more hands, the better. We can get it done uh, nice and quick. Um, and then uh, this evening, I've got the Valentine's Day dance for the school, which uh, I get to DJ, um, which I enjoy doing. Of course, it uh, getting getting all the technology set up and everything, um, and then playing some music for the kids. But um, of course, it adds uh, adds to the day. So it's going to be a busy day for us. Um, so if you can come help, that would be great. One o'clock um, over at church. All right. Lord be with you all, and we'll see you in the morning for Bible class, 8.15 and divine service at 9.30. See you then. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church, Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org. That's stjohnrandomlake.org slash support and give today.